Think about your house. What is your home? What is your home a place of? Your home is a place to raise a family. Maybe it's a place of rest and respite. Maybe it's a place where you can just, you, you enjoy coming in and walking in and smelling the smells of home. Maybe it's something cooking on the stove and whatever it may be, it may be a place of peace. Maybe for some of us, unfortunately, it is uh, not a place of rest. Maybe it's a place of difficulty, a place of fear and concern. But when we think of the home in the best possible light, it's maybe all of these positive things we mentioned and more. But we think, what is it not a place of? Can you imagine if you came home one day, and we know that we all do, many of us do work on our cars at home, uh, but could you imagine if you just came in and some random guy just decided to set up shop in your driveway and said, hey, you got a nice flat driveway, and you know, I've got a business here where I'm repairing cars, I'm doing light repair, don't worry about it, but you got a nice flat driveway, so I just want to kind of set up shop in your driveway, and I'm going to make your home the headquarters of my business. I hope you don't mind. I think we all would mind. Now, many of us do our own repairs at home in some level some greater degree than other, but I think you would be quite uh, caught off guard if someone walked in or you walked in, you came home and someone was using your home for other than what it was meant for. And we see a very similar situation here today in Matthew chapter 21. As we enter into this uh, three-week series, the Passion Week of Jesus Christ, of course, leading up to Easter in a couple of weeks, but not too long before this, we see again Within the week, the Passion Week of Jesus Christ, we see the triumphal entry. Let me read there and begin in in verse 1 of chapter 21. And now, now when they, that is Jesus and his traveling companions, drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go into the village opposite you and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says to you, you, uh, why do you need these things? Say to them, the Lord has need of them. And immediately that one who owns those items will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet saying, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, a foal of a donkey. And so the disciples went and did this just as Jesus commanded them and brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. So you could imagine this welcoming party of Jesus. They'd heard about his ministry in the countryside, and Jesus himself is now entering what we know to be the last week of his life, is entering in to Jerusalem. And it says a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees, spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, listen to this, a messianic passage, no doubt about it, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. What's amazing about this is over the course of this week in Jesus' life, we see here that many of the same, undoubtedly many of the same that were cheering him and praising him as Hosanna, son of David, were those that would turn upon him. But nevertheless, we see whether no matter how many were included in this group that later turned on him or not, we see the tenor of his life from one who was being praised, one who was rightly being praised because we know him to be exactly who he said he was. He was the son of God. He wasn't just some ordinary man. He wasn't merely even a great teacher, but he was God the Son, stepped out of heaven, stepped into a body, ultimately to save us from our sin with his death upon the cross. 
But then we begin to see already some of the the good nature, the good uh, fortune, uh, the welcome begin to crack a little bit. And we see here uh, Jesus initiated as he he is stepping into this final week of his life, we see some Jesus-initiated difficulty, meaning this, that he saw something that was not right that he could not let be and leave alone. It says, Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. You say, this is really strange. Why in the world would he do this? We know Jesus to be a man of peace. We know Jesus to be a man uh, who was lowly in spirit, but it never said that he was weak. Meekness, if you remember, is not weakness. We have conflated those two meanings over the course of, of many years and centuries and in our English usage. We've conflated those two. But meekness, the, the biblical word that's translated into meekness in our English language, speaks of a bridled power, much like an incredibly powerful horse that has bridled. And Jesus, that's exactly what he was. He was an incredibly powerful man because he was the God-man. He was God, stepped out of heaven. But we see here that he was, he was uh, indignant. He was uh, in, a, in a holy anger, if you will, not in sort of a capricious uh, fly-off-the-handle sort of a rage, but it was a, holy, uh, a holiness reacting to unholiness in the very presence of the Father. And so we know that the temple was the house of God. It was the place where it was the very presence of God would come and dwell. And it, was, and it was more than that. It was a representation of God's presence amongst his people. It said, then Jesus went to the temple of God and, and, and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. The interesting thing about this is that they were actually in the purest of sense. Maybe at the beginning, they were doing a service. There were those that were traveling in, pilgrims from all over the known world at the time who were Jewish by heritage and by religion, and they would come to the temple and worship, and there were those that may help them change money because maybe they only had Roman coins or the coins of their native land, and they needed something that would fit the bill in the temple. Maybe they even traveled all that way and did not have a sacrifice. So there was that service provided as well. But very clearly, we see that from the context that this wasn't just merely a service to help out religious pilgrims coming in, but this had turned into an extortion racket, marking up the price, uh, marking up the exchange rate, marking up the price on the, on the animals that were sold for sacrifice. And what had happened is something that was to be pure in a house of prayer had now turned into a den of thieves. He says in verse 13, and he said to them, it is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, it says in verse 14, and Jesus healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, how the children were crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David, the children had it right. They were echoing the very words that were spoken by the crowd not too long before this. Those leaders were indignant. The, Pharaoh, the, the Sadducees and the scribes, the chief priests and the scribes, they, uh, they denoted the religious establishment of the day. They were the ones who were threatened most greatly by Jesus, who was the one who was speaking, of course, as we know him to be the God-man, he was speaking absolute truth, absolute truth. And they threatened, he threatened their way of life, that sort of 
bringing together of the religious world and the, and the uh, political world, which they represented. And he was a threat to that by his very words. And they were indignant and said to him, do you hear what these are saying? So again, they spoke to Jesus and they said, do you hear what these are saying? You hear what these children are saying about you? And do you hear and, and see what these are saying that are coming to you with their issues and, their, and their, their need for healing? And Jesus said to them, have you never read? Have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise? Then he left them and went to the city of Bethany and he lodged there. Lord God, as we come to your word this morning, as we should come each and every week, that we come on Sunday morning to hear from your word during this time, maybe be your word that we walk through together in our Bible studies, maybe be the word that we share around our tables at home as we sit together as families and and share scripture and, and walk through scripture together. Maybe it's in our personal time in which we have with you and we walk through Scripture daily with you and carve out time with you. Whatever it may be, God, may you make our hearts open. Oftentimes we say, essentially to you, we're part, part of the way open. Our hearts are partly receptive to what you'd say to us. But there may be something in our life, Lord, that again, you want to touch you want to place your finger upon, and you, need to, and you want to say, this needs to be healed. This is something you're holding. This is something you're trying to control. This is some area of our life that, that we want to hold back from you, and we want our own way and our own say in this, Lord God, but you say that needs to be given to me as well. God, to help us to trust you in that. We know if we give our lives fully and completely to you, every bit of it, every decision, every choice, every twist and turn in the road of life, Lord God, and we do it your way, that that is where fulfillment and peace and joy and rightness of living come. That is, that is where we'll find the right answers of life. But Lord, so often we have trouble giving it over to you. May that be the case. And as we come to this passage today, may that be the case as well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So when we look at this, we see, as we see reflected in the title of today's message, that the house of God is to be a house of prayer. Now, the interesting thing about this is there's no exact direct correlation of the temple to today. We know that the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. So we know in many ways that the indwelling presence of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, dwells within us through the person of the Holy Spirit. But we also see this sort of side of the temple as well, as it was the house of God, not only where his presence would dwell, but it was sort of the gathering place of worship, the gathering place of worship. We know in the day of Jesus, there was a gathering place for, the, for all uh, of, the, of the Hebrew people, all of Israel to gather uh, together in the temple, those that would come at particular times, but then there were also synagogues around, local gathering places in which they would Uh, They would gather together and study the Word of God, what we know to be our Old Testament. And we know the local church is much like a sort of combination of those two things. We reflect much of what would would be done in the synagogue and what was seen in the local synagogue of Jesus' day, the gathering, much like an ecclesia, the sort of gathering together. But we also see a lot of what was, was done and the focus and the purpose of the temple reflected in the local church as well. And so not only do we, we see this sort of admonition that our, 
lives, our bodies, and by, by extension, our lives should be a place of prayer. We should be people of prayer, but I think probably even more applicable to our uh, daily situation, the New Testament situation, would be the fact that what we see here is that the house of God, the temple of God, should be reflected in a local church just like this. So is our local church, this local body of Christ, are we a house of prayer? Once again, we see in the first few verses here that Jesus drove out those who were changing money and those who were exchanging doves. He was driving them out because they were no longer just providing a service for those who wanted to come and worship in pureness of heart, but they saw this as an opportunity to make a buck, and so it turned into something of thieves. And it wasn't just the fact that they were doing something wrong. It was the fact that they were doing something wrong in the place of something that should have been absolutely incredible. And so he says in verse 13, you know that it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Combining of two Old Testament passages. First of all, Isaiah 56, 7. Then, even them I will bring to my holy mountain, it says, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a prayer for all nations. What, really, when you look at the context of the entirety of Isaiah 56, it speaks as the house of God, the house of God being a haven for the outcasts and the foreigners who are truly seeking the Lord for forgiveness. So again, as we see that reflected in this local body of Christ, are we a haven? Are we not only a house of prayer, but are we a haven for those who are outcasts, those who are foreigners, for those who might be, as we're going to see in just a few moments, the least of these that might be considered by the world at large? Also, we see a combination here drawing from Jeremiah 7.11. But instead, he says, this house, which has been called by my name, has become a den of thieves in your eyes. Behold, even I have seen it, says the Lord. This is in the midst of a great prophetic passage with two different points of focus. Not only do we see that that point of focus in the immediate nature of when it was written in Jeremiah, but also it extended, of course, we see reflected here in Matthew chapter 21, that the people of Israel had walked away from their Lord and his house, the temple, the reflection of his presence amongst his people had become a den of thieves. Listen to this, folks. Write it down. It's going to be on the screen here. The house of God is to be a house of prayer. The house of God is to be a house of prayer. When it is not a house of prayer, it is susceptible to becoming a house of ungodliness. Now, it seems strong, does it not? We see this reflected exactly here in this passage of the temple. You see, it's not simply neutral ground. If the house of God, and we know is, I think, the best extension of this principle today that we see here in Matthew chapter 21 is the local church. When this place uh, becomes, when it, when, it, when it no longer becomes a house of prayer, it is not just neutral ground. Something will fill the void. Non-gospel things will fill the void. And sometimes, flat out, ungodly things will fill the void. Do we ever wonder how a, a local church just becomes a social club? We talked about that before, that we want more for our church, for this body, the Metropolitan, to be a Christian social club. And let me tell you what, I think we're well on the way of that becoming the truth. Thank God for his glory and his power in our midst. He is working us, and he's been working us for years and years and years to be reflecting more than just a social club, but we 
are a, a house of God that is, that is on the front lines of being ambassadors for the gospel. You know, many of us are involved in other sort of social organizations and civic organizations and school organizations, and those things are wonderful. They do wonderful things. Many of them do a great deal to raise money for many wonderful causes, uh, putting to an end many terrible diseases, and many of those things, they do wonderful things, but the local church is to be more than a civic organization. Guess what? The church is neither to be a business. There are many great things we can learn from the business world. Even in the midst of, of some of the planning that we're doing and some of the work on our building, there's lots of great things that we've learned and, and invaluable knowledge and invaluable wisdom from many of you that have served many, many years and served very faithfully from a, a calling by God, by the way, to serve in the business world. And we learn many, many great things from the business world. And by the way, just as an aside, that is just as much a calling as it is to pastor a local church to be called to the business world, to be called to the schools, to be called to whatever it is, vocation that God has called to you. That is a tremendous calling in which you are called to be an ambassador of the gospel. But you think about it, even in the business world, the greatest businesses take risks. The greatest businesses take risks. At the very least, we as a local church should do the same. The church should be doing some things. The local church should be doing things that do not make sense to the greater world, to the secular world. We should be doing God-sized things. And listen to this. The anointed vehicle for God-initiated and God-sustained power in a God-sized vision is nothing less than the persistent prayer of God's people. You hear that? Let's read it again. Write this down. The anointed vehicle for God-initiated and God-sustained power in a God-sized vision. By the way, that's the size of vision he wants to give to a local church. And a God-sized vision is nothing less than the persistent prayer of God's people. I think it was very timely, of course. God is not surprised by any of the planning of, of what he brings to bear in a local church. But I don't think there's any surprise in his planning that he has led me to preach this sermon about the house of God shall be a house of prayer, right on the heels of us being greatly blessed again by an anointed man of God, Bill Eliff, as he spoke to us last Sunday. And as you know, that is his greatest calling is a calling towards, towards uh, challenging the local churches for revival, uh, the local churches for revival and, 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 and through and coming through prayer. God initiated prayer. You see, that is the vehicle. That is his anointed. That is the God-ordained vehicle in a God-sized vision is his people crying out in prayer unto him. But he continues here. This incredible narrative, you imagine this, of Jesus drawing the crowd in the temple. And it's just they're going about their business. They're just kind of doing what they've done for years. They're, they're, they've got all the tables set up. They're exchanging the money. They're raising the rates. They're making it really tough on people. But they know, hey, I'm going to make a buck here. I'm going to raise the, the exchange rate on these coins because the people can't use the Roman coins in the temple. I'm going to raise the rate on these sacrifices because we know pilgrims have come from miles and miles around and they're over a barrel here. They're just going on about their business. And what in the world, this guy, this guy that we've been hearing about, and man, he's got a following. This guy named Jesus just tries to upset the apple cart, nearly literally. He tries to throw it all out of bounds. What in the world is going on? But with this sort of holy fire in his eyes, this sort of pure, 
this sort of pure fire in his system of saying, uh, not any sort of great malice, not any sort of great uh, uh, impatient capriciousness, but this sort of holiness of crying out and saying, God, that the house of my father, which is meant to be a house of prayer, it is anything but. It is a, it is a place of thieves. Can you imagine this scene? And then, of course, his incredible presence in this place, not because, of his, not because of the fact that he was the one that could walk in and own a room. He was not the one that, that had incredibly eloquent words, although we know he did because they were the words of God-man, the very God uh, on earth. But because there was just something about him, he was the presence of God on earth. He drew people into himself. And it says in verse 14 and 15, then the blind and the lame came to the temple and he healed them. And he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes, they saw the wonderful things they did and the children crying out again, the only ones that got it right, Hosanna and the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And of course, we know he answers them. And he answers them quoting scripture. But let us look first at the people, the blind and the lame. And then we know just a moment later, the children. You see, this is what In other places in Scripture, we see that Jesus Christ was reaching out to what the world might call the least of these, what the world might call those that have challenges, don't we all? What the world might call not those that that are just look perfect on the outside, none of us are, but those who the world might have forgotten, those who the world might overlook, Jesus and his ministry and those with him, they reached out. To these people because, again, he wasn't just an ordinary man trying to raise up a following. He was God on earth, and he looked at each and every person whom he came in contact with as exactly what they were. They were people. They were human beings created in the image of God. You know, I was listening to an interesting podcast uh, this last week in which there was a, a war reporter named Ben Anderson. And he was speaking of the fact that he lives in Brooklyn now. If you know anything about Brooklyn, New York, it is becoming a, what's called a gentrified area. So it was an area that had, uh, was a, uh, a place of maybe some challenges and some uh, crime, uh, crime-ridden and many of the difficult things that you see in some of these difficult areas and cities. But it's becoming gentrified. I don't know if some of you are familiar with that term. That basically means... Uh, those of, a, of an upper class, maybe an upper middle or beyond, begin to move back into an area. A lot of times it's initiated by um, uh, sort of higher tone uh, housing, uh, housing developments and, uh, and apartment developments. There's many of these sorts of things that are happening all over the country. And so you see this sort of mix. From the outside, you see this sort of mix of, uh, 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 of, of different races and different socioeconomic classes, and it seems from the outside like this might be just right, and I think it's wonderful what the possibility is. But he says, as he lives in Brooklyn, he says it's amazing how even street by street it's still divided up into different socioeconomic classes, uh, different races, and things like that. And he says, those that you would expect, uh, those that you would expect to really be fighting for this sort of integration. He's 
speak specifically of schools, be fighting for an integration of schools in that area, those that would lean um, politically, those that would lean sort of in the public eye and in public statements, lean towards integrating schools. He was speaking specifically of schools were those he would see at these city council meetings who were fighting tooth and nail to make sure their kids went to this school and not this other school down the street. And so what does it speak to? It's pervasive in our human nature, and it's part of our fallen sin nature to look at others as other than us, look at others as less than us, look at others as the least of these and the forgotten. And Jesus Christ, who again was God on earth, he jumped right in the middle of that, and he blew it to smithereens. Look at, listen to this. Jesus welcomed, cared for, and healed the least of these. When we lose sight of the purpose of the house of God, we can begin to believe that it is a social club that needs the best of these to raise its profile in the community. That's long, but man, that hits. That hits right at the heart of the situation of any church that may be tempted towards that. Any church is susceptible towards that. And Jesus Christ jumps right in the middle of it in his ministry and blows that apart. Jesus welcomed, cared for, and healed the least of these. When we lose sight of the purpose of the house of God, we can again believe that it is a social club that needs the best of these to raise its profile in the community. You see, we think about what can it become? When it's not a house of prayer, when it is not, a, when the local church is not a house of prayer that is prayerfully focused upon the things that please the heart of Jesus, what can it become? Well, we say, Pastor, there's churches that don't really, maybe don't reflect this uh, in, in totality that are strong, growing churches. Now, first of all, we may not know that. We may, from the outside, you may, from the outside, say, Well, this is uh, this church that I know that's down the street from me. May not be that that church is not a church that reflects the heart of Jesus in this. We don't know that until we go, until we plant ourselves there. And by the way, there is no perfect church. All of us have room to grow. But also, we do know there's some churches in times that churches can grow, and a church like this can even grow, uh, unfortunately, sometimes simply out of strong human ingenuity and creativity, even without the presence and power of God. And we say, how oh, that must be impossible. But do you remember what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.3? For the time will come when they, that is, those that, that, that say that they are following Christ, but they truly aren't. For their time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, it means ears that want to hear the latest thing. And this sort of conflation, we know that the principle of this rings true in our culture. This sort of just general uh, good thoughts and and, and some sort of religiosity sort of conflate themselves into something that's that's worthy of a meme on, on social media, but it has no truth. And it says, it continues, they will heap up for themselves teachers. Teachers that will teach that sort of mix of just general religiosity and good feelings. Folks, even in this, when we think about about this very thing, pastors just like me, pastors just like me have been and and, and we are complicit in this very thing as well. If the house of God is not a house of prayer, and it's not one that says we are a home for the least of these, pastors can be susceptible to this just as well. 
because we can be plagued by the same selfish ambition that plagues the rest of the world. But listen to this. We can, all of us in the local church, can become motivated by having the biggest, the best, the cleanest, the neatest, the most pristine all-American church around. We don't want to have the awkward, clumsy church with lots of difficulty and lots of issues bubbling just below the surface. We want the church that's neat and clean with neat and clean folks with no problems. Well, guess what? There's only one problem with that, and I think you know it. There's no such thing. There is no such thing. There is no such thing. We all have our issues. We all have our problems. We all have the things that we need our church for so that we can wrestle together with the word of God and and see that we grow in maturity. And guess what, folks? The only other problem with that is Jesus did not build his ministry that way. He didn't build it that way. He didn't build his ministry, nor has he built his kingdom. And if he didn't do it, why would we? You see, he had in his following... Those that were his disciples, not just the inner 12, but his following of this day. Guess what? He had leaders of men, but he also had the least of these, and he had everywhere in between. His following was a reflection. It was a reflection of society. It was a reflection of humanity. Again, we know these chief priests and scribes here in verse 15 and following, they didn't get it. This man who they knew to be, they they did not realize that he was God on earth. He was not the Messiah, that he was just a man with a following. They didn't get it. They didn't know who he was, and it says that they were indignant. They were indignant when they heard not only only did they, they see him healing those that were the least of these, but another category of the least of these, those that just should be put aside and forgotten, it was the children that got it right. It was the children that were still reflecting exactly who it was, and they were saying, Hosanna to the son of David. They knew that this man wasn't just an ordinary man, and they were indignant. They were indignant. You see, folks, here's the thing. There will always be opposition to the things that are important to Jesus. There will always be opposition to the things that are important to Jesus. And unfortunately, this opposition may even come from those who should understand him best. You see, there's always going to be opposition to the things that are important to Jesus. And this opposition may even come from those who should understand him best. You see, the religious leaders of Jesus' day should have understood the heart of God. Many of them, they were absolute experts in the the Scripture. They were absolute experts in what we know to be in our Bible as the Old Testament. They knew it frontwards and backwards. They knew the, the, the messianic passages of Jesus Christ, that the Messiah would come. And yes, they were hoping that he would be one that would come as a conquering king. And by the way, he will return as a conquering king. But they should have seen the passages that said he would come as a lowly, suffering servant, one who would suffer for the sins of mankind. They should have known him best, but they missed it. They missed him and they missed his heart. Folks, we in here, those who gather under the banner of Jesus Christ, should know him best. And unfortunately, sometimes, even within the local church, our hearts, cannot be, our hearts may not be in the right place. Our hearts may not be in the place where Jesus' heart rests and resides. And we, too, may be the ones. We, too, and prayerfully we're not, may be the ones that are opposed to his work through the local church in the world. 
May we pray, of course, that we are not those that stand in the way. You see, here's the the reason why. Gospel living is otherworldly by its very nature. It is out of this world. It is otherworldly by its very nature. Meaning to live for the gospel means that you will value the things that are valuable to Jesus Christ. And we will not value the things that are valuable to the world. Now, here's the thing. If we want to sort of keep one foot in the world and we want to keep one foot in the things of Christ, or better yet, what often happens is that we want to sort of stand here on the fence and keep both feet firmly planted in the world, and we just sort of want to reach over the fence into the things that are important to Jesus Christ when it's convenient for us, then we should not be surprised when we bucket the fact, when we bucket the calling of Jesus Christ that he gives us that are undoubtedly radical calls. He calls us to radical God-sized things. And if we stand here with two feet planted in the world and just sort of reach over, very best for straddling the fence, we shouldn't be surprised when we, in our very guttural uh, part of who we are, just rejects that and bucks at the radical call of Jesus Christ. But what does he say in verse 16 to their answer to the fact that they say, can you believe this? Are you just going to let this go? They say to Jesus, you know what this means. When they cry out, Hosanna in the son of David, Jesus, you know what that means. That is a messianic passage that speaks of the coming Messiah, that speaks of God on earth. And Jesus doubles down and he says, absolutely, I know exactly what it means. And he quotes unto them this verse, Psalms 8-2. And it says, out of the mouth of babes and of nursing infants, you have perfected praise. I think it's worthwhile for us to go and listen along with me here to the entirety of chapter 8 of the book of Psalms. Short chapter here, listen with me. Listen to how it is dripping with this sort of uh, messianic power. Listen to how it is dripping with the glory of God. And of course, we know this, that Jesus was applying this to himself and saying, I am God. I am the one who stands before you. I am the son of God on earth. Verse 1 of chapter 8 of the book of Psalms. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you have ordained, what is a man that you're mindful of him? The psalmist is saying, God, I have seen all that you've created and as powerful as you are, I can't imagine you'd even concern yourself with me, which we know that God does. And the son of man that you visit him, for you have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. Speaking of God, that that we as, as human beings are the crown jewel of God's creation. You have made him, mankind, to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. O Lord, O Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Jesus stood before him as these religious leaders, the religious establishment of the day, were indignant because not only was he healing people, but he was accepting praise unto himself, and he stood tall again because he wasn't just an ordinary man. He was God on earth. He stood tall, and he said essentially, yes, you have it right, and I have it right. I am the Son of God. You see, here's the thing. He realized that the the children, the children who understood him, who understood 
uh, exactly who he was in their simple, not simplistic, but their simple, straightforward faith knew exactly who he was. Listen to this. Those who have straightforward, unqualified trust in Jesus, they will see his true nature. They will see his true nature. They will clearly see that he is the son of God and he is worthy of worship and praise. Folks, if we are to be a house of prayer, this is what we must reflect. Not a simplistic faith, not a childish faith, not one which is unthinking, one in which the mind is not engaged. The mind can be absolutely engaged. The word of God and the truth of God absolutely stands up to any scrutiny scrutiny of the human mind. But it is a simple faith, meaning we see clearly, we see clearly, and we're not allowing our own uh, predispositions. We're not allowing, as the indignant uh, scribes and Pharisees did, to allow their own, uh, their, their own lives and their own power and their own social standing to get in the way of recognizing, and there are no threats to that, to get in the way of recognizing who Jesus was. But the children saw simply and straightforwardly that this man is different. This man is clearly who he says he is. He is the son of God on earth. Folks, again, if we're to be a house of prayer, we must have that faith, not only saving faith, but in the same way that we were saved in placing our trust and faith in him and turning our lives over to him. And as Jesus himself said, repenting, that means to turn from our old way of life and turning our life over to him in belief that he isn't just an ordinary man, but he is the son of God. If we trust in him in the same way that we came to faith in Jesus Christ is how we are to daily walk in him. The house of God is to be a house of prayer. We're going to end in a little different way today. You know, I'd been praying about this this week, and I want to end differently. Not only are we speaking about prayer, but I think coming off of this last week, and, and God's timing is perfect, not only calling uh, Bill Elliff to come and be with us, who again has a heart for prayer in the local church, but again, transitioning through this passage here in the Passion Week of Jesus Christ into the time of Easter, I think it's just perfect to finish in a different way. What we're going to do is I'm going to have the band come on back up at this point. And here uh, at the end of this time and how we're going to end this sermon portion of our service, we will have a time of, of worship at the very end of our service, just like we normally do. And, and during that time, I want to give you an opportunity to come back and speak to me and pray with me about whatever is on your heart and mind. Um, maybe it's the fact that you have never given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ and you need to commit your life unto him today. And after this time now, we're going to give you an opportunity to do that. But what I do want to do right now is I want to close out this, this message, this time of, of, of coming to God's word with a time of prayer. So what I want to do is have you bow your heads and close your eyes at this time and listen with me, if you will, as you're as you're bowed there in your place. And we're going to have a time, some times of quiet prayer throughout this portion here as we end. But as we do as well, just as you might feel led, any of you and as many of you as feel led, I want you to stand right where you're at in just a few moments. I want you to stand right where you're at, and I want you to pray for a couple things. I want you to pray that God would give us God-sized vision for our city, God-sized vision for our city. 
And then I also want you to pray that our church, this house of God, this local house of God, will be a house of prayer. We're going to have some music playing softly now as we just join our hearts, and you just pray there silently. But if God leads you, would you stand and just pray? Just pray loudly right where you're at.